0: Hello and welcome back for another instalment of the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly dose of political interviews and analysis about the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, casting a keen eye over what MPs, mayors and councillors are up to in the Red Wall and beyond. And I write it up into an email newsletter that drops in your inbox every weekday lunchtime. Why not check it out by visiting www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. This week, the North's leaders have decamped to Liverpool for their latest conference. This one is called the Northern Transport Summit. According to organisers, this particular event provides a high-profile opportunity for political and business leaders to unite on what the North needs to go further and faster. Transport Secretary Mark Harper was due in Merseyside for the event, uh, but unfortunately he's had to pull out at the last minute. In fact, it's not the first time he's had to cancel an appearance in front of Northern leaders. But his Labour counterpart, Shadow Transport Secretary Louise Hague, did speak and I caught up with her to find out what she'd do about our struggling bus and rail services in the north of England. You can have a listen to that later. But first, I've got a great guest to pick over some of the more interesting news stories this week in the north. Edna Robinson, who chairs the People's Powerhouse Movement and knows a thing or two herself about... Organizing big events in our region, we we went to your fantastic conference in uh, Manchester before Christmas, Edna. So um, how, how how are you?
1: I'm great, thanks, Rob. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you.
0: Likewise, it's very good to very good to have you on. Now, the first story I thought we would discuss, which caught my eye, was one about the world's biggest trial of the four-day working week, which has been in the news this week, and involved quite a few firms in the north. So what we mean by a four-day working week is dozens of companies have committed to cutting the working hours for all their staff by 20% for six months. Uh, And the crucial point is they had to make sure that there was no reduction in wages for their employees. So at least 56 of those, 61, said that they plan to continue with the four-day working week, and 18 said that the policy has become a permanent change. And the, the people Behind this idea, say that it has loads of benefits in terms of mental health uh, of the employees and productivity, uh, a whole host of benefits. I mean, what 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 do you make of that? As someone who has uh, you know has helped has run big organisations uh, in the past in the NHS, can you see why that would work?
1: Yeah, well, I think anything that we kind of explore that starts to make people feel a bit more energised about their work. Um, is a good thing, and so I'm all for trialing new ways. And this, you know, this is one of them. I think there were 61 employees, weren't they who joined this thing, and they all seem to say that they they found some very positive things. People were refreshed; they had better attitudes as a result of it, and they seemed to demonstrate more energy for the job. I mean, clearly, you know, in my stable, seven-day-a-week service is 24 hours a day. You've actually got to keep that machine running. But we've seen very much in a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week service how demoralized people have become. And actually, it's as much about how people feel about the impact that they're having as the actual impact. So I think it's, you know, it's it's a real positivity. Let's, Let's, you know, let's hope that many of them will keep it up. And the revenue seem to stay the same in terms of the productivity. We have got a productivity gap, haven't we, in terms of looking at how people compare with other parts of the country. So, yeah, all for it, Rob. I think it's um, a really good idea.
0: I was watching a little clip from uh, GB News, uh, which is not a, Uh a channel I make a habit of watching, but there was an interesting bit where Philip Davies and Esther McVeigh, the Conservative MPs, were interviewing Peter Dowd, the Labour MP for Bootle, who is one of the main supporters of the four-day working week, and they were asking him about this. And uh, Philip Davies said something along the lines of, "Oh, my dad always said to me, if an idea seems too good to be true, then it probably is." And that there's, I've read quite a few articles from sort of the right of politics saying that it, uh, you know, soon we won't be working at all and th- things like that. And but um, Peter Dowd pointed out that. Throughout history, whenever working practices have changed, like, you know, with the introduction of the the weekend, like we didn't we didn't we didn't yes. used to work at weekends and now we do. Uh, you know, things like the minimum wage. There's always been opposition to that. And people have said that it's going to have an economic impact. And then actually it becomes embedded, and you you can't really imagine what life was like before those changes were made.
1: Well, you need the politics of cynicism to keep us all talking, don't you? So I think there's a real sense that change that's imposed on people is is hard to accept and so the more people who are energized around this stuff who use evidence use facts you know let's look at the facts around this rather than the emotional characterization because there's so much emphasis on good work now it's there's so much emphasis on skills in the workplace and so forth and i like to characterize uh, skills as well as skills and contribution because people need to feel they're contributing to an organization's goals and the impact it has, not just feel that they're there as cannon fodder as a member of the workforce. So, yeah, I kind of not surprised there'll be those kinds of cynics around and genuine, you know, genuine concern, you know, we don't want to make decisions that we then later regret. But we have got We've got a post-pandemic exhaustion, which we should all recognise. And I know the government wanted us to pretend the pandemic was is over. But if you read all the research, it takes two to three years after a major shock to a society for it to get over it. So we've got that post-lethargy and it's characterising itself, people being frightened, people being fearsome, people being bad-tempered, all kinds of ways in which people are showing some distress. So we kind of need to find some new ideas to try and get our workforce motivated. So you no, know, definitely up for the trials. Definitely, Rob.
0: The next story that I've seen a bit of it is well, it's something that it's happened a couple of weeks ago, but the fallout from it is continuing. I think you'll have seen in the news, the protests in the Nosley area of Merseyside a couple of weeks ago, outside a hotel housing asylum seekers, which descended into violence as a police van, vandalised, fireworks thrown. Now, obviously, we have to be a bit careful about how we discuss this as there are active criminal proceedings. But this week in the Commons, the local Labour MP, George Howarth said he had concerns about the involvement of far-right groups from outside of Knowsley, sort of stirring things up, basically. And in response, Robert Jenrick, who's a Home Office minister, said the government was stepping up its response to far right groups involved in the process in protest now i'm interested in i don't know what you make of the wider issue because i guess the issue of asylum seekers being put in hotels it is but i think it's fair to say it's more of an issue in the north because accommodation is cheaper in northern england and like if you look at the statistics that is where a disproportionate number of asylum seekers go but i think everyone agrees that placing people in hotels is not a great solution but then also uh you have criticism of ministers like suella braverman the home home secretary who uh described there being an, an invasion on our southern coast so there's a lot of quite emotional stuff and quite difficult politics going on here i mean is the government making it as far as you're concerned making a decent stab at dealing with what is a very challenging issue, or would would is is could the government be do, doing better on this? In your view?
1: Well, I think a generous response would be to say no, they're not making a good deal of it. I think it's there's some very dangerous rhetoric, and I think when we see uh, large changes, large scale changes in our communities that we have no control over, we're bound to feel anxious about that. I mean, it might be just the building of a building that nobody wants or whatever it can be. But when it's also characterised with this really dehumanising narrative about people not being worthy to be part of our community, then I think that heightens people's fears and anxiety. And I don't believe that public leadership should deteriorate in this way. I think that there is a real important debate to be had about how we look after people who are vulnerable and are fleeing all kinds of persecution in other countries but congregating people in one place where they will become victims where they are very noticed where they're not integrated where they can't work where they can't bring a positive contribution to that community how will that community ever get to know people other than seeing them hanging around street corners? Or So the whole idea that we can't, we can't create some positive social capital out of having all these very fit and healthy young people on our doorstep, surely the government can come up with a better proposal than this. I feel, I feel so depressed about it that the, de- the debate always degenerates into kind of hate language.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And it's interesting that the government acknowledges that placing asylum seekers in hotels is not a good idea. And it, apparently it's trying to find alternative accommodation in places like holiday parks, former student halls and disused military barracks. And there was a story, wasn't there in in, uh, in a little village in North Yorkshire, uh, where there was a huge outcry when the government tried to do that. So I, I yeah, it remains to be seen whether the government can, can come up with a good answer uh to that
1: there's just a constant um issue isn't there about people pretending to be tough when they're actually just being mean? Yes, and so you know, I will make a value judgment about the distinction between being focused and energized and being mean, and this this for me is at that end of the spectrum. This is a real problem to solve, but we if we unless we all get together and really try and understand how we can solve it instead of these. Uh, sound bites, and as I say, mean-spirited sound bites. So all we're doing is adding to the anxiety that our communities may well already be feeling—that there isn't enough health service, there aren't enough jobs, there aren't enough houses, there aren't enough everything. And here we are with another group of needy people, but they are needy. And as a you know, a British citizen, I welcome them into my world, and I'll share whatever I can, which the majority of people will. So we just don't want cheap politics on the back of this.
0: So another complicated and challenging area of public policy is what we do about our failing bus services. And we'll be hearing a bit from Louise Haig later about what she would like to do if Labour were to obtain power. But we know buses are massively important. They're by far the most commonly used form of public transport. But if you look around the country, with a few exceptions, you'll see... Passenger numbers are below what they were during the pandemic. Services are being cut and the government is having to step in at the last minute like it did last week with subsidy to keep the services going. And often it's too late. I mean, it's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it? Uh, I mean, how do we get out of it? I guess if it was an easy thing to do, we'd already be be doing it.
1: Yeah, but it's another problem to be solved, isn't it, in a creative way. You know, we've seen over the years that, most people felt, you know, introduce market forces and the problem will be solved and we'll get the deregulation of the system and the problem will be solved. And neither of those approaches have worked. And so we need to see this as, you know, local transport, not local buses, because there are all kinds of modes and methods of transport which don't look like a bus, that actually, you know, smaller scale community transport that could be, uh, looked at. So I think the, it is, it's a bit of, um, it's a women and children thing. It's people traveling to work very locally who may be in the low wage economy. Most of our transport debate has been with an uppercase T hasn't it, which is big transport going to big places to do big jobs with big wages. And actually, as you said, uh, in your introduction, uh, ordinary transport and us also trying to get greener and get out of our cars surely again this is an opportunity for a really positive debate i mean i noticed the bus recovery grant's been extended um for a little while longer but this is a problem waiting to happen isn't it i mean we've seen steve in liverpool get his hydrogen buses and Apparently got a quote from the American vice president this week, didn't he, about that? And uh, so we're seeing ad hocery, creative ad hocery across, uh, and, you know, shout out to the mayors. I think they're always looking for really positive ways of, um, Tracy's been really, um, you know, very, very energised about her transport system as has Andy has as well, of course. So I think there's loads of energy going into this. Um, but I think there's a local transport plan needed where we're engaging more people who have got smaller modes of transport who could actually help with this and link it to, you know, to more to women, children, short journeys um, and people who, you know, who have got um, essential things to do, like going to hospital, going to, you know, to pick up, shopping, whatever it might be that's really essential and stop seeing that everything's got to be linked to a skills trajectory of getting people into high-paid jobs. That It's far more complex, as you said, and and really interesting. Let's make it a far more interesting discussion.
0: Now, for the final thing I just wanted to chat with you about, uh, it's a slightly lighter, lighter story. Can I ask you this question? Have you ever eaten uh, a palmo? Do you know what that is? No, no. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll explain it to you. If you're from, if you were, if you'd grown up in Teesside or sort of uh, the northeast, maybe bits of North Yorkshire, you would know that a parmo is a flattened, deep fried piece of chicken or pork in breadcrumbs, topped with Béchamel sauce and cheese, and it is a local delicacy of uh, that part of the world. It was brought over, I think, by a chef who was staying in Middlesbrough. And now, if you go for a takeaway in in Middlesbrough or Redco or Stockton, you, the chances are you'll be presented with uh, one of these parmos to eat, and they're quite a quite a proposition if you were ever to ever to try one. Um, so, on her Radio Two show, Claudia Winkleman uh, was very confused by the idea. She was told about it by the uh, Ed Gamble, the comedian, and she suggested that maybe was was it a bit like an aubergine parmesan, <laughs> which. I don't think really does it justice, to be honest. So it got me thinking about other culinary delicacies here in the North. Uh, you get about the North a lot. I mean, are, are there any uh, sort of local local food delights uh, in the North that maybe people might not have heard of?
1: Well, I'm your archetypal Manchester tart, if you'd like to
0: talk about that. So oh, of that's... course, yeah. I mean, what, 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 what is that exactly?
1: <laughs> well, it's a pastry with custard and jam in and... Uh, Either again, love it or hate it. I mean, we've got the Stotti in the northeast, haven't we? We've of course. got Eccles Cakes, we've got Scouse in Liverpool. So I think the you know, it, it, is, it is a bit of fun, but food is part of people's identity. And our work is about people's identity and feeling a sense of belonging. And some of the things we talked about earlier are actually working against people feeling a sense of belonging. The food is such a great barrier breaker, isn't it? And so, I've, you know, I'm going to turn it into obviously a point about the fact that we absolutely need to get need to feed our children properly, so we can have a bit of a fun about a mid, middle class piece of food that Claudia wants to talk about. But actually, you know, let's get our children fed in our schools and You know, hats off to Sadiq Khan for raising the whole issue about free school meals. Um, I feel very passionate that we cannot and must not have hungry children on our
0: watch. Yeah, that was a really interesting, interesting one, wasn't it? Because when he announced that, obviously he made the point that the government, central government was not willing to pay to have free school meals uh, for everyone. So he was having to do it himself. I think using business rates to help pay for that and it was an interesting contrast with Middlesbrough Council which I think has recently been looking at we were discussing this on the podcast last week actually recently looking at whether they could extend free school meals to uh three and four year olds across the area obviously Middlesbrough has very high rates of child poverty very high rates of deprivation uh and it was agreed that it would be a really good idea to do this but uh the council uh, just doesn't have the money. I think it would have cost about two million pounds to give free school free free meals to all children in childcare settings at the age of three and three and four. So I guess it's all the more laudable that Sadiq Khan is able to do it in London. But I guess it perhaps hints at the sort of the more challenging circumstances that northern leaders have when they're trying to protect their most vulnerable because they don't often don't have the financial resources that the capital does, was that a bit of a too too simplistic a way looking at, looking at it?
1: No, absolutely, and I think you know we absolutely looking at local government funding. It is pretty shocking that they're in that position. And we can't lean towards philanthropy and goodwill, can we, for these things? You know, have, surely we've lost the plot if we actually haven't got our basic infrastructure for our children. So it shouldn't depend on local authorities' ability to raise these funds. I mean, I think this is a central government societal issue about the health and well-being of our children, and they should get this right We can't keep relying on Marcus Rashford, amazing Mancunian that he is, and he's playing so well for my team at the moment. However, you know, he did his bit. I don't believe in personal philanthropy. I think this is, these are state and public issues. Let's, you know, let's get the basics right and um, not rely on, you know, poor old local authorities having to hand wring about whether they can do these things. It's... um, Anyway, back to Northern Food. It's a great talking point, and it's always good fun, isn't it, to talk about it is. colloquialisms. It is, Or whatever. And I, you know, love accents. I love the diversity of the North, and... We're just putting together a community map at the moment of all our everybody who's doing amazing stuff across the North. So give that a shout out for us, Rob, because People's Powerhouse, you know, we are just a good friend to people out there. We want to be bigging up how amazing the North is. Food, whatever it is, let's just keep talking to each other and make the north a kinder place and let's not play some of these games that we've been hearing about and we were talking about earlier we're not out here to talk about negative characteristics of humans we're actually here to get the best out of everybody
0: Anna robinson chair of the people's powerhouse thank you so much So we are in Liverpool today. The sun is shining over the River Mersey uh, behind me and we're at the Maritime Museum where uh, Northern leaders have come together for the Northern Transport Summit. Uh, It's just after lunch and we have just heard from Hugh Merriman, the Rail Minister, who has been talking about the reforms that uh, he and uh, Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, think are necessary to uh, improve our failing railways. And a bit later this afternoon, we're going to be hearing from Louise Haig, the Shadow transport secretary and uh, MP for Sheffield. So uh, Louise, it's very nice to have you on the podcast.
2: Yeah, lovely to be here. As you said, the sun's shining. It's nice to be in sunny Liverpool. It's
0: it's a glorious day. So um, let me um, ask you this. Well, I guess the first thing, anyone who's in the north asks each other whenever you get to a destination it's how how was your journey up?
2: (laughs) Well actually very unusually I got the Avanti train up from London yesterday and it was absolutely on time and it was uh, there were no problems at all so I was very fortunate but you know here in Liverpool today there's been 18 cancellations on TransPennine Express alone so my journey yesterday was uh, was not not the norm for most of us that have to have to use the train service across the north of England at the moment.
0: Yeah absolutely well I, I felt fortunate I got the train from leads to Liverpool and it arrived on time and left on time yeah. and had all all the right like, carriages and but which <laughs> I realise is a very unusual. But unu- no, I
2: mean it, it wasn't that long ago that that wouldn't feel that unusual it feels like things have really badly collapsed in the last year in particular haven't they and obviously Covid has played a massive part in that passenger numbers um are not exactly the same as they were pre-pandemic but things just have got really really bad particularly for the north of England haven't they over the last year and particularly for Pennine Express any of us that rely on you know the service between Liverpool and Leeds or Hull uh, Huddersfield has been really really badly cut off as has Cleethorpes and it just feels like if that was happening in other areas of the country if the service was that bad in London and the southeast there's absolutely no way the government would have sat back and allowed it to continue for as long as it has but people right across the north are experiencing a totally unacceptable level of service from operators like TransPennine
0: so i should say at this point that we we'd hoped that we would have got uh, the managing director of Trans- TransPennine on this podcast but sadly he uh, had to pull out at the last minute yes. uh, obviously it's great great to be talking <laughs> to you um the um, Hugh Merriman, the bell Minister, was just talking about Transpennine and Avanti West Coast as a, another operator that's been struggling. And I think the point that he was making is that obviously they're performing badly, particularly badly in Transpennine's case, but that uh, to some extent it's not their fault because there are things like infrastructure resilience and um, working rest working day arrangements that uh, are not in place of Transpennine, which are holding them back. And obviously that is uh, a particular f- issue for Transpennine because they don't have a rest day working arrangement which would allow people to work on the day offs and then have a more resilient service. And he says that an offer has been made to Aslef, the union, and so the ball is in, in their court. I mean, what, what do you make of that as an explanation for Trans-Pennine's difficulties?
2: The issues that TransPennine uh, are experiencing are no different than any other operator across the country uh, has experienced. And they were told, um, as long ago as 2016, to start recruiting more drivers because they didn't have a full complement. They've never recruited sufficient drivers to service the uh, routes that they, they won in those franchise bids. Um, and they didn't um, recruit as other operators did through COVID. So yes, they've not got proper rest day working arrangements in place at the moment, but other operators have managed to get better um, arrangements with the, with the trade unions and with the workforce and are running far better services. So uh, I, I agree with the diagnosis that Hugh has set out for the uh, issues that TransPennine is facing, but I would say the only people to blame for uh, for that are the management of Transpain and Express, and we've just run out of road, really. We've we've had enough of uh, of their behaviour and their poor management, um, and so we think it's, it's past time that the contract should be stripped from them. Uh, the Prime Minister said yesterday that it would be up for renewal in May. Uh, I don't think the North should have to wait that long for things to improve. Uh, they've been given chance after chance after chance by this government, and they have repeatedly failed to deliver on the contracts and on the services that they are obliged
0: to. Because they uh, have, I think they've submitted an improvement plan to the department, haven't they? Which Hume even was saying they're looking at now. So your view is just end the contract immediately, there's, there's no hope for them, basically.
2: Yeah, the, the operator of last resort, um, which is basically public ownership, said to the Transport Select Committee recently that they had capacity to, to manage it themselves um, in uh, with operators like Northern and with LNER. Um, it's not a total panacea because the system as a whole is broken, but it has um, delivered short-term improvements and it, and it has been more reliable to be delivered by the operator of last resort. So, we think that is definitely in the best interest of passengers.
0: Now, on the subject of sort of infrastructure and the future of big sort of railway projects, um, on things like HS2, Northern Powerhouse Rail, the government has been all over the place, Mm -hmm. I think. It's quite hard to know what their current position is, but I think as it currently stands, HS2 will only go as far as the East Midlands, not all the way to Sheffield and Leeds, Mm -hmm. and Northern Powerhouse Rail will not be a full high-speed rail that Boris Johnson promised it will be a uh, a bit of high-speed rail, new line between Warrington and Marsden in, uh, in West Yorkshire. Is it right that your position is that you would build, if Labour were to get into government, you would build both of those in, in full?
2: Yeah, so the, when both of these networks were designed, they were designed on the uh, business case um, for economic growth across the north. And uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail would unlock billions of billions of pounds and create tens of thousands of jobs across the north. Uh, so both these schemes are necessary in full to unlock the kind of growth and productivity gains that we desperately need. And every time the government hatches back bits of HS2, it makes less and less business and economic sense. Um, so we're really worried. They've already said, as you as you said, that they're not delivering it all the way up to Leeds, uh, which would have made the most uh, the most economic sense. But now they're looking at kind of cutting other bits back as well because it is getting more expensive because of their delays in delivering the project. Every time they did and every time they chop and change uh, the project, it, it bakes in delay and it bakes in additional costs. So. Their, um, their total mismanagement of the project as a whole is costing the taxpayer much, much more than it needs to.
0: And when we talk about Northern Powerhouse Rail in full, yeah. uh, it's often a bit of a, a tricky one as to what that means. So for you does it mean um, it means a full new line between Leeds and Manchester and it would mean uh, upgrades to Hull and the North East? including the Leamside Leamside line?
2: Yeah, so Leamside, um, a brand new line between Leeds and Manchester with that critical new station in Bradford as well as Britain's youngest city. It's got some of the poorest connections in the country, so it really needs uh, that new station in order to improve particularly connections to Manchester. That would reduce the journey time from an hour to 20 minutes, which would be pretty transformative for bringing in investment into Bradford. Um, But it also means upgrades and electrifications um, right the way between Liverpool uh, and Hull. Um, uh, and and of course the Trans-Pennine upgrade as well, which was originally promised in in 2011, which disgracefully still hasn't happened. The the really important thing about the new lines um, between Leeds and Manchester and HS2 in full is it helps um, increase capacity on the existing network. So you have these high-speed new lines intercity that will deliver very, very fast services, but it frees up capacity on the existing infrastructure so you can have much better, much more reliable kind of commuter um, journeys and, and those kind of shorter distance ones as well um, and get freight off the existing infrastructure so it ma- mass- massively improves capacity across the whole network. Yeah.
0: The government, I guess, and Grant Chaps has argued this previously, say that his sort of cut price version, if you like, delivers benefits sooner and... You know there's a, there's a limited amount of money at the end of the day we mm-hmm. can't just be writing a a blank a blank check obviously what you're proposing you would assume would cost quite a lot more than what is currently being proposed. Can the nation afford that? Is is that the best use of taxpayers' money?
2: Well, we know that for every pound spent on infrastructure, it generates £2.80 in economic investment. And Keir Starmer this morning has launched the five national missions that will guide the next Labour government. The first is that we want to have the largest sustained growth in the G7. The best way to achieve that is to properly connect our major towns and cities, and particularly those ones that are not well connected at the moment. You know, we cannot attract the good green jobs of the future that we need if we've not got a proper transport system that connects them up so uh, transport investment and infrastructure is a hundred percent necessary for that economic growth. So, and you know, when the, the infrastructure that we're relying on now was bought, built over a hundred years ago, we're thinking about the really, really long-term future now and the infrastructure investment that is necessary for the next hundred years. Um, but it's also obviously necessary to meet our net zero commitments. You know, we're, we're thinking ahead to two thousand and fifty when we're wanting to reach that net zero goal. Are we really saying that we're going to have fewer people on the rail than we have at the moment and f- less? Freight on the rail than we have at the moment, so it's it's absolutely essential to deliver on those two commitments.
0: Now I've fallen into the trap I think of asking you lots of questions about trains uh, when yeah. actually uh, <laughs> exactly. most people go by bus <laughs> yeah. by bus, don't they? Yeah. Now last Friday the government stepped in mm-hmm. to provide another eighty odd million. Pounds uh, for the bus recovery grant, but it seems like it's sort of a, uh, and this is, this happens every few months, doesn't it? Because they get to a point where services will have to be cut because they haven't reached pre-pandemic levels of passenger uh, passengership, and uh, the cycle just keeps going on. The government keeps having to step in with subsidy to bail out the, uh, the these unviable services. What what what's Labour's alternative to what we're currently seeing
2: yeah well we are in the cycle is the right kind of language she use. we it does feel we're in this spiral of managed decline really and and every six months we reach that cliff edge um, of funding um, so you start to see services already cut back, now first and foremost we want to see franchising in every community in the country so we're already seeing Labour mayors um, lead the way like Andy Burnham Steve Rotherham here in Liverpool is, is on the path of franchising as well, because no other country in the developed world gives private bus operators the kind of power they enjoy here, which is just picking whatever routes they want to choose and setting whatever fares they want um, and that's left communities with no control over or say over the net, over the routes and services that they really rely on and it is a quiet crisis that's happening um, across the country and sadly rail gets all the kind of national media attention because it's very expensive and lots of politicians and journalists use uh, trains more, af- more often than the average member of the public um, so it really needs uh, serious political attention and it's great to see Labour mayors um, leading the way and recognising how important buses are to millions of people so we want to expand franchising so that everywhere can do it and make it much easier easier uh, for them to do quicker and uh, harder for operators to challenge it through the courts, as they did with Andy Burnham's uh, model. We also want to end the ideological ban on um, municipal bus companies. Nearly every year, either Nottingham or Edinburgh win the award for being the best bus uh, operator in the country, and it's no coincidence that both those bus operators are publicly owned. They resisted the privatisation in the 80s of the bus networks, and they deliver a more affordable, accessible, reliable bus system than anywhere else in the country. So we want to see that model picked up by other communities that's what those communities want to uh, want to do but undeniably we need to see some more long term sustainable funding in the system and ahead of the general election we'll be setting up those plans as well
0: okay. uh, So my final question is about uh, active active travel mm. uh, so in your city of Sheffield you might have seen in the news Dan Walker the TV presenter mm. he was cycling along and he got uh, yeah. it was in uh, in collision with a, a car yeah. uh, and he, he sustained really nasty, nasty injuries and yeah. it prompted a bit of a debate about uh, sort of Cycling safety and uh, the the South Yorkshire mayor Oliver Coppard says, you know, we need to make our roads safer Which prompted someone to say well if there was more Buses that people could get easily in Sheffield then not so many people would be in cars and then maybe it would be safer for cyclists Mm -hmm. So with with all that being the case and we've got uh, Chris Boardman here Mm -hmm. actually in Liverpool who is uh, who is a big uh, proponent of, of cycling I mean would would you cycle in if you're living it, when you're going out and about in Sheffield would you, would you cycle is it, is it do you think it's safe in places like Sheffield and other northern cities to do that or do we need to be doing more or to encourage people to get onto their onto their bikes
2: well I would struggle to cycle in Sheffield because I'm not enormously fit and it's very hilly. <laughs> so that's one of the primary reasons why I don't cycle in Sheffield but look I mean there's obviously a massive issue Dan exemplified it really well and the council are working hard at the moment to expand um cycle routes out actually but partly through my constituency it's been relatively controversial with some closure of roads but those are the those are the difficult decisions that have to be made um and in order to prioritize cycling but you're absolutely right to to set it in the context of um, public transport as well. It's not an either-or. All these decisions have to be made in an integrated way, protecting bus lanes and cycle lanes in order to make our roads safer for everyone and allow people to have choice between, you know, whether they want to use the car or the bus or um, the bike. At the moment, lots of people feel their only choice available is their car because the buses aren't reliable and cycling isn't as safe uh, or as easy as it should be. So what we're in the business of is trying to open up those choices for people to make. Um, as healthy and as cheap a decision as possible.
0: Well, let's hope that works. Uh, Louise Haig, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.